Thank you, George. Donada. Don't press it too far. <laughs> you know, whenever I am introduced as a seminary professor, I can almost hear the groan. Oh, no, this is going to be dreadfully boring, and this individual can do nothing but complicate the process. If that's your sentiment, perhaps you can identify with the fourth grade teacher who was recovering from surgery and who received a card from her fourth grade class which said, your fourth grade class wishes you a speedy recovery by a vote of 14 to 13. I suspect that if you had occasion to vote, I probably wouldn't have the opportunity of speaking to you. But you have been afflicted by another's decision. I don't know about you, but I come to this week with a great deal of expectation. We have a great God, and I have come to expect great things at his hand. I trust you have not come to hear the voice of a man I can assure you at the outset, this will never suffice to meet your needs. Unless you hear from heaven this week, this could be the most wasted week of your life. But if God breaks through by means of the Spirit through the Word, this conceivably could be the most significant week of your life. And many of us are praying that that will be the case. May I invite you to turn tonight in the word which is alive to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. One of the alarming trends in America today, transparent to the thinking Christian, is the disappearance of the distinctively Christian home. I refer not merely to a home where Christ lives, but to a home where Christ rules, where Christian truth filters down and permeates into every area of human experience. When the Apostle Paul said, don't allow the world to squeeze you into its mold, he spoke incisively to the needs of 20th century Christians. I spent three of the most profitable weeks of my life recently at Campus Crusade in Arrowhead Springs. 1,800 college and university students. What a challenge. And I met a young man, extremely capable, an All-American from the University of Iowa, young man who, together with his wife, were introduced to Jesus Christ through the ministry of Campus Crusade. We were chatting together one day on the campus, and he turned to me and said, Sir, I never realized how brainwashed I was by my culture until the exposure of the word this week. 
Did you hear what he said? One of the greatest dangers confronting you as a believer in this generation is the danger of being brainwashed by your culture. He went on to say, I was so brainwashed that I came to the place where I thought that unrighteousness was righteousness. And it's been so profitable to expose my mind to the truth which God has revealed. I don't know of any area of human experience where we need a greater exposure to the truth which God has revealed than in the area of marriage and family living. And for our time together these evenings, I would like to direct your attention to several pivotal passages. And I have two primary thrusts in mind. First of all, I'm jealous that you personally will drench your mind with the truth that God has revealed concerning marriage and the family. And if necessary, that you will make any necessary adjustments to the truth as you discover it for yourself. But secondly, I'm jealous tonight, for I recognize that in speaking to this group, I'm speaking to many more. There are many of you who are parents. There are many of you young people who have yet to make the critical decision concerning your future mate. There are many of you, young and old, who in one way or another have a significant influence in the life of other people. And I want you to know that the Christian position concerning marriage and the family is going by default because some of us are ashamed to discuss what God was not ashamed to create. Some of us are stuttering when we should be speaking. In all of my ministry, I have never discovered a greater hunger and thirst on the part of young people, university students particularly, to understand what God has revealed. I was invited some time ago to speak to a large group of medical men on the subject, the New Testament and the new morality. And after I got through, a resident came up and said, Sir, I want you to know I'm not a believer. But this is the first time I have ever heard anyone say anything about what the Bible has to say on the subject. And today, Christianity, in terms of its revealed truth, in the area of marriage and family is not to many a live option for the simple reason they have never been instructed. And I trust that each of you will become a center of influence and of communication to share what God will share with you, with others. I want to take just a few moments to give you a little background The first two chapters of Genesis comprise a strategic unit dealing with creation. 
The first chapter does not end where it does in your text. It properly ends at chapter 2 and verse 3. I'm sure I don't need to remind as sophisticated an audience as this that the chapter divisions in your Bible were not a part of the original text. As a matter of fact, they were added hundreds of years later. Let's see if we can focus this for you. Let's try that for a while. They were added hundreds of years later by human editors, supposedly for the purposes of clarification. Sometimes they are extremely confusing, and this is a case in point. The chapter division should come between chapter 2 and verse 3 and chapter 2 and verse 4, going to the end of chapter 2. This first section draws the focus upon the creation of the universe, a creation which culminated in God's creation of man. Now, beginning at verse 4 of chapter 2 and going to the end of the chapter, the Spirit of God draws his focus upon the creation of man. In other words, he is moving from the general to the specific. God's creative genius was culminated in the creation of man, and it's this that he details for you, beginning at verse 4 of chapter 2. Now, there's another significant thing that gives us a clue to the understanding of this passage, and that is the use of the name God. In this first section, the name which the Spirit of God chooses to use is the name Elohim. Beginning at verse 4 of chapter 2, he changes to a different name for God. Not as the critics have supposed, a different name because there was a different person writing the material, but a different name because the writer of the material had an altogether different purpose. The name Elohim emphasizes the power of God. And he wants you to know that in the creation of the universe, it was the powerful God who stepped into human experience, who created it. But in the second section, it is the personal God, Jehovah. Not now the almighty God, but the covenant keeping God. The one who not only makes covenants, but who never breaks them. Who enters into a personal relationship with a man. And as we shall see, who takes a man and a woman and brings them into a personal covenantal relationship which, like the one who brought it into existence, should not be broken. Now I want to plug into the narrative at verse 26 of chapter 1. God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. 
Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the cattle, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And God created man in his own image. Now note, in the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Let's stop there for a moment. I want you to know that the first thing mentioned in connection with the creation of man is the polarity of the sexes. There is no such thing as a human being apart from maleness and femaleness. The most distinctive thing about you as a person is that you are a man, is that you are a woman. And the tragedy of our generation is that we are masculinizing women and we are feminizing men. And so wherever I go, I run into Sally Neuter from Middlesex County. <laughs> and people constantly asking me, why is it that we have so little leadership? So few men who really can take the place of leadership and headship in their home. I wish we had a couple hours to talk on this because in my judgment, this is one of the most critical problems of our generation. We have a tragic blurring of roles so that a man does not really know often what it means to be a man and a woman does not know what it means to be a woman. Or the man has what we frequently call a masculine protest and the woman has what can be called a feminine protest. She hates the fact that she's a woman, the greatest curse of her life was that she was not born a man. How tragic. How wonderful to meet a man and a woman who first of all recognize God created me with this role and with a responsibility that goes with that role and a privilege. I have no greater distinction than the distinction of being a man or a woman in the will of God. And my friend, that was not an accident. The greatest blow in my judgment to homosexuality comes precisely at this point. The fastest growing perversion on the American scene. Now up to six out of 100 in America and in Southern California in many sections, 27 out of 100. And I am asked with greater frequency and not without reason, why is it that this is the case? My friend, frequently it goes back to the fact that a man does not accept his maleness and fulfill his responsibilities in this role, or a woman repudiates and rejects her femaleness. I hope, gentlemen of God, you are doing everything by the direction of the Spirit of God to develop your maleness. And I hope, my lady friends, you are doing everything humanly possible by God's enabling grace to develop your femaleness 
Nothing is more repulsive to a man than a woman who acts like a man. And nothing, nothing, nothing do I get in my office as much as a woman who sits and looks me straight in the eye and says, Man, I'd give anything if I were married to a man. A real man. A man who was not ashamed that this was the role that God had given to him. My friend, if a man could be satisfied by another man, there was no need for the creation of woman. And the very fact that God created a woman is proof positive that no man can ever satisfy another man and no woman can ever be satisfied by another woman. Now look at verse 18 to see how God develops this. May I suggest at your leisure that you read this passage over frequently. You will discover a repeated statement. And it was good. And it was good. And it was good. And it was very good. But verse 18, Jehovah God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. And every man said, Good night. Boy, do we ever need this conference. No wonder you brought me up here, Hendrickson. And I want you to know who said that. God said that. My friend, that's one of the most remarkable statements in the scripture. Let's just back off for a minute. What did this man Adam have? Friend, he had a perfect environment. No ecological problems there. He had a creative Ability with which to name all of the animals. He had perfect, unbroken fellowship and communion with God himself. And yet may I say it reverently and on the basis of this passage, what his environment could not provide, what his creative genius could not provide, what God himself did not meet in terms of need. A woman did. The first thing I say to a young man walking into my office and they walk in in a steady stream and say to me, Prof, I'm planning to get married. I'd like to talk to you. I say, wonderful, let's sit down and talk. I say, the first thing I want to know is tell me something about the young lady you're planning to be, to be married to. And, of course, this is a lovely assignment. And most of them are very articulate, even those that can't preach. They really wax eloquent. Well, I had one boy, he just went on and on and on. Gave me his life history process, much more than I expected. But it was thrilling listening to him, just detail. Then I said, all right, I want to ask you one question. Do you need her? Do I need her? Yeah. Can you get along without her? Well... Marriage, my friend, is not a process of finding someone with whom you can live. It's the process of finding someone you can't live without. And when you come into a marriage convinced, not that this is nice, 
but that this is necessary, then you have an altogether different relationship. I had a young man was in graduate school in the sixth year. I said to him, friend, when are you planning to get married? He was coming up to graduation, and, you know, it's rough to get a man a job who hasn't been married, at least in the ministry. Well, he said, uh, I've been thinking about that. I said, I think you ought to think about it more seriously. Well, he said, I really don't know that I need anyone. Well, I said, then, friend, don't ever get married. Boy, about six months later, he came plowing through the door right over the top of my desk. I found her, Prof! I found her! I said, you found who? I need her! That's the one I found. I said, man, friend, tell me about it. It'd be very interesting if we had time tonight to go up and down these rows with those of you who are married and interview you by asking you, do you really need your wife? Have you ever come to the place where you recognize how desperately impoverished you are without her? If you do, my friend, then you make the kind of mate that makes a marriage that won't quit. Now, I want you to note the words that God uses here. Because when God undertakes to do something about this, this is fantastic. God said, it's not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a help me. Now, that's a fascinating term. In fact, it's really two words in the Hebrew text. And it means one answering back to. Don't take that too literally. <laughs> the picture is of a mating call that goes out. And if you look in the context, you will discover that for every beast, for every animal, for every creature, there was someone to return the mating call. But when the mating call went out from Adam, there was no one to return the call. No one to answer back to his needs. So God creates a woman who perfectly meets the specifications of man. She completely answers back to his need. She fills up the empty spaces. She's a helper fit. Not to give fits. <laughs> but adapted to is the thought of the original text. One who meets his specifications completely. Now I want you to notice what happened. Look down in verse 20. Man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the heaven, to every beast of the field. But for man there was not found a helpmeet for him. And so Jehovah God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs, and this was no side issue. I just wanted to see if you were awake at this stage of the game. Closed up the flesh inside thereof, and the rib which Jehovah God had taken from the man made he a woman, and he brought her unto the man, and the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. What a sad translation. 
You know what the Hebrew text says? And the man said, Whoopee! Where have you been all my life? You see, he immediately recognized that this was what he was looking for. Nobody had to give him a course and a set of instructions as to this one belongs to you. (laughs) Here, now, at last is the most literal translation of the text. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, boredom of my boredom. You add anything else. For all that you are as a person, you bring to the partnership. See, don't tell me you have problems in your marriage. Your basic problem is not with your marriage. Your basic problem is with you. And the interesting thing is in marriage counseling, I have them come into my office all of the time and you wouldn't believe some of the stuff I hear. That lady come in some time ago, she said, I went out. She you mean out? You mean out of here? Doors open. No, 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 I went out of my marriage. Well, I said, lady, that's tremendously serious. I said, we better think about this now. Well, why, why do you want to get a divorce? Is that what you were saying? Right, that's right. That's what I want. Well, I said, it's very serious. Let's see if we can find out why. Well, all kinds of reasons. Well, fine. Give me one. Well, I don't know where to begin. Well, I don't mind. Start anywhere, wherever it's comfortable. Oh, she said, I have so many of them. It's embarrassing. Well, I said, all right, I'll give you an assignment. So I gave her a card. I said, now, I want you to write down on this card before you come back next week the reasons why you want a divorce. What is it about him that really bugs you? All right. Okay. So she went out. She came back next week. I said, uh, where's your car? Oh, she said, I tore it up. <laughs> said, I fill up one side, he fill up the other side. I said, what's the matter? You run out of cards? I said, I got some more here for you if you need more. Oh, she said, no, it's just silly. She said, I got so many things on there. I said, okay, same assignment next week. Well, next week she came out. She was so proud she had the cards. There they are. I said, all right, fine. Now, let's see. What's the first one you have? Well, she said, let's see. The first reason I have on here is he won't pick up his pajamas. I said, fine, that's profound. Let's put that one down now. He won't pick up his pajamas. Now, as I understand it, that's the reason why you want a divorce. Is that right? Well, she said, it's kind of silly, isn't it? You always let the counselee make the statements. And while you're sitting here laughing at that, my friend, every single day of this coming week, there will be a person in Colorado Springs, Dallas, New York, Los Angeles, who will be divorced on a basis of things just as ridiculous as that. Things that you and I sitting here who are married face every single day of the week in our marriage and solve. But you see, the difference is if you have a commitment to the marriage that divorce is not the solution, 
then whenever you face a problem, you've got to work it out. If divorce is a live option to you, my friend, you'll have a hundred reasons in the first month to look for the fire escape. That's why I think the greatest need in marriage today is for commitment. Total commitment to the person. I have students come to me and they say, Prof, I'm looking for a girl. I said, what kind of a girl are you looking for? Oh, he said, I wrote down some things. Boy, this one fellow had four typewritten pages. Both sides. I said, read them to me. He read them to me after he got there. I said, man, friend, that's profound. Can I get a copy of those? <laughs> Thinking about writing a book. And I said, all right, I want to ask you one question. Okay, what is it? How many of those things on that list are true of you? Oh, what did you say? <laughs> How many of those things on that list are true of you? <laughs> I don't know, but I, I, I don't really think too many. I said, my friend, that's where we've got to begin. And you know, men and women, I believe this week could be the most significant thing for you as a couple if you would stop thinking about what is the problem of my mate and start thinking about what is the problem of my life that is marring this marriage. You see, the partnership is only as strong as the persons that comprise it. And what you are as a person, you bring to that marriage. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Now, the interesting thing is that this is quoted by our Lord Jesus in the Gospels, and by the Apostle Paul in the Epistle. This becomes the basis of a one-flesh relationship. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. What a beautiful picture of God's blueprint in the creation of a man and a woman and a marriage relationship. I'd like to underscore for your thinking in the brief time that we have tonight four principles that emerge from a study of this text. The first thing I want you to note is that marriage and sex are of divine origin. They are not the product of human invention. They are the product of divine intervention. They are not the product of a pervert. They are the product of Almighty God. You know, I'm working with young people, I sometimes get the impression that they invented sex. My friend, God thought of this. God designed us. He not only has designs, 
He also has ways by which those designs may be fulfilled. And as long as you cooperate within the framework of the design, this becomes a beautiful thing. This becomes an enriching thing. But the moment you take it outside, then it becomes a devastating thing. Grace perfects. It is sin that perverts. One of the great individuals in our generation, and I say great simply because of his impact, is a man by the name of Hugh Hefner who conceived a book entitled Playboy Magazine, the slickest magazine on the American newsstand today. And by his own testimony, this is not a magazine. This is a philosophy. And he spelled it all out clearly for you to see. But he's used a very clever debating technique. And if you've ever debated, you can recognize it immediately. What you do is this. You take the position of your opponent in a debate and you caricature it. And then you proceed to crucify it. And this is exactly what he has done with what he calls the Christian view of sex which is so far removed from what the Bible teaches that you would never know that you were talking about the same thing. He takes a viewpoint of sex that no one who understands and believes and embraces the Scriptures would ever embrace for himself. And he says, this is what Christians teach. And then after he caricatures it, he proceeds to damn it. This is one reason why I love to get a person who says, this is what Christians believe about whatever the subject is, to support this with the scriptures. Show me where the Bible teaches that once. And of course, most of them don't even know enough about the Bible to even cite a reference. But occasionally they pick up something that somebody sort of palmed off on them. And the truth of the matter is, there is no real basis in the Word of God. There's a second thing I want you to see, and it grows out of this, and I want you to teach it, where it's taught by the Word of God. And that is marriage and sex were given as gifts by God before sin entered. Therefore, they are not sin. And I think, my friends, we need to shout this from the housetops. Now, I know you can buy this intellectually. Most of you probably would. But it's another thing to buy it emotionally. I have a wonderful gal married to one of her students. I've come to love this couple and the Lord so much for many reasons, mostly because of their Christ-likeness. But they've had a severe problem in their sexual life and their marriage, mostly because 
This girl over-identified with her father, who apparently cultivated at no end, with the result that she finds it practically impossible to relate to her husband. And the moment she gets close to him, she just breaks out in a cold sweat. She just becomes partially paralyzed. Now, this girl knows the word of God. She can quote it back to me as well as I can quote it to her. She understands that this is God's design for her marriage. And she's hopelessly in love with this man. And she wants to relate to him so badly she'd pay any price. But the longer we've gone into it, the more I have surfaced the fact that in her life, not intellectually, but emotionally, she picked up and you largely pick it up in a home environment and sometimes in an evangelical home, that sex is sin. It's dirty. There's something wrong about it. And the result is when a person comes into this relationship in marriage, it becomes a serious hang-up and problem. I would say to you, my friend, if you're a parent, that one of the greatest things you can possibly do for your child is to express your love and affection to your mate in the presence of your children. I hope you are not embarrassed to kiss your wife right in front of your kids. Now, don't expect their reaction to be the guideline for your procedure. <laughs> Especially if they're teenagers. Oh no, here we go again. Ton seconding. But I work with too many teenagers who'd give their right arm if they had a father who loved their mother. Friend, I'm going to talk about this more later, but I want you to know the greatest sex education you can ever give your child is by loving your child's mother or father. Greatest heritage a child can possibly receive is the heritage of a home in which there are two parents, both of whom are unashamedly in love with Jesus Christ and unashamedly in love with each other. You don't develop perverts in that kind of a home. There's a third principle that comes from this passage. And that is reproduction is the normal, but not the exclusive purpose of sex. Reproduction is the normal, but not the exclusive purpose of sex. Now, there is a threefold purpose of sex as designed by God in the scriptures. And I want you to turn to several passages, and I especially want you to study them through for yourself. The first purpose of sex is to provide for parenthood. It's the purpose of propagation. Chapter 1 of Genesis, verses 27 and 28. God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion. He is not talking about irresponsibility in bringing children into the world. He is always an advocate of responsible action. 
But be careful that you are not brainwashed by your society that says two and no more, and preferably the two should be adopted. Now, I think one of the greatest privileges I've ever had in my ministry is being the human instrument that God has used to facilitate the process of adoption for a lovely Christian couple who discovered medically, biologically, that it was impossible for them to have a child. And some of my most wonderful memories are of couples that I have associated with and that I know who have, with real deep Christian love, moved out because they could not have children of their own and embraced other children. My friends, I believe the Word of God teaches that your responsibility before God in a marriage relationship is to recognize that children are not a curse. They are not an accident. They are one of the greatest blessings God can ever give. And I'll tell you one reason why God gives you children. And that's to help you grow up spiritually. So you thought it was different, didn't you? You thought you were helping them grow up. I got news for you tonight. God gave them to help you grow up. And it's interesting to see two people, you wondered if they ever had an intelligent thought in their mind. Suddenly look down in a basket as they seen two kids look down and say, huh, Ours! They're responsible. My man, I can almost see them growing up right in front of my eyes. I've seen students at the seminary of a child in the first year of the seminary, and by the time they get to be a fourth year student, believe me, friend, they've had an education. And I'm not talking about the one they got in the seminary. Someday I'm going to write a book on theological truths my children have taught me. They've taught me a lot more than I ever learned in seminary. Some of the greatest lessons you are in a process of learning right now. The lessons God is teaching you through your children. Oh, you say, but you don't know my kids, man. Oh, boy. <gasps> I said, oh, man, you should see them. They're breaking through the bottom. Great, friend. Then you'll never be able to say you were a competent parent, will you? The only thing you'll be able to say is to God be the glory. Create things He hath done. How I learned to trust Him. See, it's a lot easier sometimes to trust Him for yourself than it is to learn to trust Him for your children. But that's where you grow. That's where you develop. They're a blessing, not a curse. Will you turn, please, to Psalm 127? Verses 3 through 5. Lo, children are the heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are the children of youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be put to shame when they speak with their enemies in the gate. My friends, I want you to know that under God I am trusting Him that my greatest ministry in life will be the ministry I have sustained through my four children. You 
See, many people look at a person like me and say, well, you've got a public ministry and God's using you here, there, and the other places. That's right. But my ministry in my home is not apart from my ministry. It is a part of it. And I have a boy tonight in the city of Chicago who's ministering to dope addicts and delinquents. And if you read in the paper of the two policemen who were shot in Old Town, that took place in the apartment where my son is conducting a Bible study. And under police escort, he was invited to come back and conduct a Bible study. And the people came out from under the rocks. So great was their hunger. So great was their recognition of spiritual need. One of the things I'm looking forward to most is that on August 31st, my son will return from that ministry. Another son will return from ministering at a Bible conference and another daughter will return from ministering as a counselor. And we're going to have one of the most wonderful times sharing together the ministry God has given them this summer. And I have no greater joy I can't think of anything more tragic than that my wife and I should be so self-centered that we never gave the world the four kids that we're trusting God will make an impact on that world for Jesus Christ. And to allow some pervert on the outside Somebody who's supposedly liberated and hates the process to tell me what I ought to do rather than seeking God's direction for my life is sheer blasphemy. Let's face the source. Let's drive ourselves back into the Word. But there's a second reason, and that's to prevent fornication. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 to 5. 1 Corinthians 7, 2 to 5. It's very interesting to see the context because in the preceding chapter, chapter 6, he discusses the negative. And that is we are to flee fornication. They were living in a fornicatious society. And he said, take off because you're bought with a price. Don't prostitute your body. Now verse 1 of chapter 7. Now concerning the things whereof you write, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. He's not talking about a prohibition against sex. He is talking about a prohibition against fornication. But because of a fornicatious society, let each man have his own wife Let each woman have her own husband. And let the husband render unto the wife her conjugal rights, and likewise also the wife unto her husband. And you will notice it's a dual responsibility. The wife does not have power over her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband does not power have power over his own body, but the wife. Stop defrauding one the other. Accepted be by consent, and then only for a season, 
and then only in order that you may give yourselves unto prayer, and then only that you might get together again. Lest Satan tempt you. Slip up on your blind side and trip you in the process. Now the interesting thing is that there is no reference whatever to children in this context. And what he's saying essentially is this, if I can translate it for you quite directly. He's saying you must have a magnet in your own marriage. He's saying if you are not magnetized by your own marriage, there is always something on the outside that may appeal as magnetic. And particularly in our generation. I think the greatest testimony I've ever heard from a man is to hear a man tell me, as I hear him over and over again, my greatest attraction is on the inside of my home. Oh, I know, you know, every now and then we get somebody who falls into sin and the church goes up and smoke and says, Oh, my, isn't that terrible? He stepped out on her. And it is. Did you ever ask the question, why? My friend, this will never give him an excuse. But it may give an explanation as to what happened. And many times we score the man who steps out and gets involved, but we forget that there was a person at home who failed to be a magnet and fulfill her responsibilities according to this passage. Or the reverse may also be true. Your task, my woman friend, is to be the most attractive person in all of the world to your mate. Your job, my gentleman friend, is to be an absolute irresistible magnet in your home. And as we'll see in subsequent passages, that's quite an assignment. Now there is a third reason for sex given in the scripture, and that's to promote mutual love. Hebrews 13 and verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Here's both the legitimate and the illegitimate use of sex, all wrapped up in one verse. There is a legitimate expression of love in sex, and it's within the marriage relationship. Genesis 2 and verse 24 shows that this relationship of a man and a wife is to be a one-flesh relationship. And intercourse is essentially a visual aid of the relationship between a man and a woman and their oneness. Not simply physical. The physical is merely the expression of the deeper commitment of person to person. Life to life. Spirit to spirit. 
And I believe the physical merely portrays the spiritual relationship to which God has called us. Now I want to give you one final principle. And that is, this passage teaches me that one relationship must be broken before another relationship can be established. One relationship must be broken before another relationship can be established. In chapter 2 and verse 24 of Genesis, I read, Therefore shall a man leave father and mother and cleave unto his wife. Will you please underline both of these verbs? And they're very strong verbs in the Hebrew text. The word leave literally means to abandon, to forsake. You say, you mean to tell me I don't have any responsibility for my parents? Absolutely not. Paul says, if you don't take care of your parents, you're worse than an infidel. That's pretty strong language. He's talking about severing a relationship in order to establish another. The second verb, to cleave, literally means to glue, to weld. This is an unbreakable tie. And the reason many people do not cleave is that they have never left. I have a friend of mine who is a dean in a university and some time ago he said when I asked him, what do you find on the present scene? He said, Hendricks, I find the average student arriving on the college campus today with his umbilical cord in his hand looking for a place to plug it in. And I thought to myself, boy, that's a little vivid. But working at the seminary level where we get them after they're through college, I know exactly what he's talking about. You wouldn't believe what we get. But he sent one to us from New York a few years ago. I'll never forget this guy. 26 years of age is the first time this boy had ever been away from his mother. Once. She took him to school in New York, picked him up every day, took him home, and then God called him into the ministry. And of all places, he called him to study at Dallas Seminary. That's a long way from New York. So she buys him an American Airlines plane ticket, puts him on an American Airlines plane, fastens his American Airlines seatbelt, and sends him to us. And boy, when he gets in Dallas, he's the sickest puppy you ever saw. He came to me, oh boy, he said, I'm homesick, I gotta go home. I said, look friend, you got a tremendous laboratory in which to work this problem out. You're gonna be here for four years, oh. <laughs> so he went to see one after another. Finally, one day I was going out for a weekend ministry. My colleague took me out to the airport. I said, look friend, you better keep your eye on him, so help me, he's going home. Monday morning, stepped into the car. He went home, Hendrix. His mother wired him the money. So he could get an airplane ticket to come home and be with her. Doesn't that grab you? I'll borrow my handkerchief. <laughs> 26 years of age. Got the sequel to the story, my friend. This guy's now in the army. And he can't go home. And this is either going to make him or break him. And while you're sitting there laughing to me, let me cram something right down the center of your throat, my friend. Anytime you do anything for your child, which your child is capable of doing for himself, you are developing a dependent spirit 
And you are making it harder for your child to sever the relationship that he's called to sever. Now, did it ever occur to you that God said this to a man and then to a woman who never had to do that because they didn't have a mother and a father? Furthermore, he said that to a man and a woman before they ever had one child. See, God is anticipating the problem. And the last thing to sever is often the psychological umbilical cord. So I ask a parent, are you making it easier or harder for your children to leave you? Got 18, 20, 20 some years to sever the cord. And you all know it's coming. And you have all of the time in the world to prepare for it. And that's exactly what you want to prepare for because obviously you want him to build a relationship and then when it hates, boom, don't go. Because it's the hardest thing, my friend, to implement. Particularly if you're not doing it all along the line. I would say that practically every counseling situation I have today can be cataloged Marriage counseling on the basis of this verse. It's either a failure to leave with all of the constellation of problems you get. It's a failure to cleave or it's a failure to develop a one flesh relationship. And God packs them all into one verse. What are you doing to make it easier for your children to leave in order to cleave? Our Father in heaven, how wonderful is thy word. It's the lamp to our feet. It's the light to our path. We realize that we're living and moving in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation. And Lord, you've called us to shine as lights. But we confess that all too frequently the wick is burning very low. We really have all too little that's distinctive in our own life, in our own homes, in our own marriage that would attract a lost world trying to find the way shouting through their songs who will answer and not finding answers in our life we thank you our father for every opportunity that you provide for us to expose our minds and our marriages to your word And as it has been prayed earlier, we pray that, Lord, this week shall be a week of change. We pray that you will correct us, that you will reprove us, that you will instruct us, and that you will enable us to walk in paths of righteousness. And we'll give you all of the glory because we come through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.